You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Dancing Together, Step 1, Who Gets to Lead, recorded on October the 8th, 2017. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Well, hello, everybody. My name, if you're a first-time guest, my name is Mike. We are Harvest Community Church, and we meet in four locations to worship, but we're all one church. So if you're seeing me live or on a screen, uh, I get the, the, the pleasure of bringing you the message today and most, most weekends. Um, this particular message is, is really a three-parter in the midst of our series on men, women, and God, or God, men, and women um, uh, this is a three-parter. Uh, all three sermons uh, are going to go together as one sermon, but that would be a very long sermon. Our text is 1 Corinthians 11, 3 to 12. So if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, 3 to 12, out of the three sermons, I think this is the one that's going to require the most of me and you keeping our thinking caps on, because the goal of this sermon is to explain God's established order in marriage, but that's not the only goal. The other goal is to uh, dive into the Word in, in such a way that we are demonstrating the difference between unchanging principles in the Bible and cultural applications. And you can see already some of you are saying, wait, I have to put my thinking cap on. You're using... Um, words you don't normally use. Normally, Mike, you talk in short syllables and, and now you're putting long syllable words together. I know, I have to have my thinking cap on and so do you because we want to learn kind of how to tackle the Bible um, when it comes to uh, what is a cultural application and what is a principle. And that requires, you know, the, the, this is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation and one of the, the um, foundation stones of the Protestant Reformation is that the people can read the Bible and understand it, and God will help us. Um, this was unknown in Europe at the time of the Reformation. There, the only ones who could read and understand the Bible were the priests. And in fact, many people couldn't even understand the Bible because it was spoken in Latin, not even their own home tongue. The Protestant Reformation... Um, was led by the simple practice of translating the Bible into everyone's normal language and then having it preached by regular people. And so um, I say that because the goal here is that uh, you're not always, uh, you shouldn't be, and many of you already know this, but for those who don't, you shouldn't be relying on a professional clergy, if there is such a thing. I don't even like the term, to always tell you what the Bible says. Um, we work together. To, to tackle the Bible. God calls some to preach and some to teach, and I'm doing my job, but that doesn't mean that the rest of us out there are off the hook. You still have to open it up and be able to look at it. When it comes to male and female, the number one question I get that stumbles people is stuff like this. Am I allowed to braid my hair? Because in 1 Timothy 2, it says women can't have braided hair. And to which I'd point them, I think, to First Peter, where it says, Jay can't even, he says, don't adorn yourself with clothing, but with something else. And I said, well, you shouldn't even have clothes, apparently. You, you've got to learn to be able to discern what is a local principle or a local application, what's an eternal principle. And the reason this especially matters is because many people like to set aside what the Bible teaches like this. They'll say something like this. Well, the Bible does, says, 
we're not even allowed to braid our hair. But obviously, nobody cares if you braid your hair today. So it's all about interpretation. So you may interpret it that the man is the head of the house with the wife. But if we don't have to braid, our, if we can braid our hair, how do we know whose interpretation is correct? There can be an impression that the Bible cannot be understood. Most everything in the Bible can be understood. There are very hard things in it, to be sure, because it answers complex problems. And plus, God wrote it. And he doesn't answer every question that comes to our minds. So you can see this is the hardest of the three because we're actually bringing that up. Bible interpretation is, is, is kind of the underlying goal of this sermon. Um, the next two are going to be about straight on dancing. And I am a great dancer as I demonstrated last week. So you'll <laughs> want to tune in for that. So, okay, let's jump into our text without any more introduction. The Corinthian church was having a problem, all right? The church in Corinth is, is, don't worry about where it is right now. It's just a city in the first century. And they're having a problem because they're arguing. And they're arguing because when they get together to worship, uh, some of the women are standing up to pray. And when they do, they take their head covering off. And oh, what a scandal that is. I can see you're scandalized. I'm scandalized. I can't believe it. You took your head covering off. Put that back on. You know, it, it doesn't relate to me because I don't have a cultural equivalent of that. But that was a big deal. And, and they would stand up and say, I have a prophecy from the Lord. And they'd say, give it, sister. And bam, she pulls off the head covering. There, she did it again. And now they're fighting. And they're fighting. And the lady's saying, listen, Jesus loves us women as much as he loves you men. You don't have to wear a head covering. How come I have to wear a head covering? And so they fight. So Paul's going to fix the fight. Now, when Paul fixes a fight, one of the things you'll see when he writes in his letters, and and you might as well learn and love Paul because he wrote the majority of letters in the New Testament, what he'll do is he'll give you the underlying principles, and then he'll make the application. And so you could ask him a little bitty question. Should we wear head coverings or not? We pretty much just need a yes or no on this one, Paul. He's like, well, let me explain to you some vast theological principles, then we'll apply it. That's just how he goes about it, and I think you're going to see this as we jump into our text. 1 Corinthians 11, 3 to 12. Paul's answer to them, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. He's already very unpopular in the 21st century for that sentence alone. Then verse 4, he says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For a wife... Or if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So now we've got head coverings and head shaving. And we have a lot of very short haircuts today. Um, is, this, is this eternal principles or cultural applications? And how do we figure that out? Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head. Why not? Okay, here comes some wild stuff. Since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. All right, now we're going to watch our prepositions in verse 8. Prepositions are those short little words like for and from in this case. (laughs) 
for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels or because of the messengers. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So we have to ask the question, should women be wearing head coverings today? And if you're worried about shaving the head, just throw that one in too, because it's going to be in the same category. You should either be wearing head coverings or shaving your head. Should you be doing that today? Let's look at the text and see. Now, here's how we need to go about texts like this. We're looking for underlying principles, eternal principles, things that don't change. And we're also looking for cultural applications. Those do change because cultures change. And you, you have to be able to discern the difference. And, and what we're looking for to, to help us discern is, follow this, the intent of the author. The person who wrote it, what did he mean at the time he wrote it? Right? Today in America, it's a big fight about the Supreme Court. Should they interpret the Constitution by the, what Thomas Jefferson and the boys meant? Or is it a living document that we can change to make it say what we want today? Um, I prefer the original intent of the author. Others prefer something else. But when it comes to the Bible, this is written by God. You're always looking for the original intent of the, of the author. What was Paul intending when he said this? All right? You get that? I know this is a lot. We have our thinking caps on. If you're a note taker, here's what you should be capturing. When you study a difficult text, you're looking for underlying principles, and, and you're going to try to discern them from cultural applications. That's two things. And third, you're looking for the intent of the author to guide you. All right, so what I'm going to do is throw out the underlying eternal principles for you. You might say, well, I saw another one in there. You might have. This is the fruit of my study, and I'll show it to you, and you can see whether I'm, I'm on base or not on base by reading the Bible for yourself. So number one, underlying principle. So these, if it's an underlying eternal principle, this is the stuff we've got to take the most seriously. Number one, God established an order of authority in creating mankind. Everything that comes after the comma matters, but I'm going to open that up in the second one. This is the important part. God established an order of authority when he created mankind. And that includes the the male leadership, but God made mankind with an order of authority already in it, is my point. I'm saying Paul says that. And if that's so, that's got to be eternal. That's not cultural. That's not for the moment. God is orderly all throughout the Bible. We can test it throughout the Bible. He is orderly in the Trinity. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. The Father is is somehow, though equal in all ways to the Spirit and the Son, He's somehow in charge. He sends the Son to earth and He keeps order. His angels are apparently set in an orderly uh, manner. If you look at the way He handles the Hebrews in the desert, in 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 the books of Moses, everything is done orderly. If you look at the way He sets up worship, everything is ordered including who's in charge of who, where, and when. Paul says marriage is the same way God had an intention. And, and he shows that right in verse 3. He says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. That's not cultural. That's forever. Christ is the head of every man. Leader, right? He leads. That's the head. 
and the man is the head of the woman. Um, I'm using a different translation there. The way um, ESV translates that is the husband is the head of a wife. Uh, In this Greek language, you might want more certainty, but you're not going to get it. The word wife and the word woman are the exact same. So you have to take that from context. And the reason they would, the ESV translates that the man is the head of the woman as the husband is the head of the wife is because it says the man is the head of a woman, singular. In other words, I as a man am not the head of all women. And, and no one is any other man, but just one, and that would be the wife. And I agree with their interpretation. Um, I just cut and paste a different one because... <laughs> That's when I was studying. Uh, I should have fixed it. So it goes. And God is the head of Christ. So you have a very simple order. God the Father is the head of God the Son. Doesn't have anything to do with equality. You see that? We covered this last week. They're both God. They're both equal in essence, equal in value. But one is in charge. The Son is the head of the husband. And the husband the wife. And this is how we're going to direct your family is what's on display here. Your family is going to be directed like this. Uh, Your husband has to answer to Christ. (laughs) He's responsible. And then the wife to the husband. Uh, I want to comment on this a little bit because I think we have a cultural bias that makes it hard for us to see what's being said here. Um, We live in a disconnected society. By that I mean we uh, believe in rugged individualism. I don't, by the way, believe in rugged individualism. I believe in the rights of individuals. I believe in the value of individuals. But I don't believe, once you put an ism on it, count me out. But in our society, people are known as individuals. How many times do you, how many friendships do you have? How many people do you know at work, casually or for a long time? How many that you can meet people and you do not know anything about their family. And that that's normal American. I know you. You're the important one. There's something beautiful about that. Each individual matters. That is an important truth. However, (laughs) you know me. You don't have to know who my mom and dad are. You don't have to know if I have brothers or sisters. You don't have to know the clan. You know me. And we're very individualistic like that. People are known as individuals rather than members of families. Now, in smaller towns, that can break down because you all grow up with each other and you just happen to. But as you see, as you meet people who don't come from your town, you just meet people. And it's just the people. If you look at celebrities, you don't care about their parents unless they're celebrities too. You don't care about their brothers and sisters. It's, we, it's a blind spot. We just don't think like that. We think in, 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 as individuals. And individuals are self-led. <laughs> I am the authority over me. I think this is one of the things that rubs people raw in our society when you say a husband has authority over the wife is we, we're taught like the air we breathe. It's, it's in our mother's milk. I am the boss of me. I can do anything. I can be president. I can do this. You know, now I can be a man and have a baby. That's getting crazy, but that's what people are saying. Individuals are self-led. And and we need to see we're crashing into a book that says God intends most people to have a family 
and to identify by their family, to identify by their marriage, if they're married, and their fa- or be a part of a family that's around a marriage. And the husband is the leader of that family, and the father is the leader of that family. But family-centered society is the norm of humanity all the way up until the last hundred years or so. And get this, the places where family-centered society has been set aside for individualism, communism. So China used to be all families, it's just all people. Russia, socialism, sets aside the family. But so does post-Christian the United States and post-Christian Western Europe. We are at a point where we say family doesn't matter anymore. Family is whatever I define it as, and I'm me, I'm a me. We call ourselves whatever we want. I loved in that, that other, there was a football league once, some of you may not know this, I just realized it's dated. There was a football league to rival the NFL. I wish we had one now, because the NFL is becoming um, National Football Wimps League. Right? Don't hit me. But they had this one guy who changed his name to He Hate Me. And that was actually on the back of his jersey. He Hate Me. I have no idea what it meant. <laughs> but that's, that's as disconnected from your family as you can get. No one shares that name with him but him. This is not normal. Today, perhaps what we would call underdeveloped or third world or You know, India has more family connections. They still do. Chinese don't. The Indians do. Um, Some Muslim countries. It really matters that you're connected to a family. So you've got to expect as an American, you're going to have a huge blind spot here. What I'm saying may make sense, but you go, you've never experienced where the family matters that much. You think they do, but get around people where they're really family identified and you'll see they think much different than you do. They do. God's plan was for family to be our primary identity. And the Old Testament law reflects this. He puts it right in the law. He says, honor your father and mother. That's one of the big 10. Honor your father and mother is nothing today. Nothing today. It's nothing. People just don't care. They don't talk about it. They don't think about it. I'm not saying none of you people here don't honor your parents. I'm saying it's not a a thrust of our society. This is one of the most important things you can do. God put it in the Big Ten. One of the most important things you can do is make sure your mom and dad feel honored. So when you go to high school and you act a fool and your last name is your parents' name, you have just dishonored their name in public. Does that bother you? You'll never hear a vice principal say, Oh, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith, your son dishonored your name today. Because we don't think like that. God wants us to think like that. The distinction of the firstborn in the Bible, because the oldest son, he may not be the smartest, he may not be the greatest, but he's in charge after the father. And Jesus is always called the firstborn. And you know, we get people who Jehovah Witnesses falsely believe that that means he was made first. He wasn't made. He's always existed. But they think like Americans. 
if they thought like Middle Easterners where this Bible was written, they'd realize it's a place of honor. It means he's in charge. And it says he's the firstborn. He, he has all the power. He rules the family. Orphans and strangers in the law were to be if, if disconnected people, right? right? Refugees, whatnot. They were to be cared for by families or a society made up of families was, was to somehow reach out for them. We've switched it to the government cares for the disconnected people when they can't care for themselves, not families. When I'm old, I've made sure my kids know, think like a Christian because I'm going to. If my wife goes to heaven first and there's no one for me, we're not having this. I don't want to be a burden on my kids. We're going to have, add a room, baby, I'm coming. I ain't worried whether Social Security runs out. I got kids. And I mean that. I want to live by the Bible. And vice versa. They can come to me. And marriage is the centerpiece of the family by God's design. It's not a social construct that can be messed with. God is very orderly. And he sets that order into creation. The second half of that we can put as its own principle. And that's God created male and female with the intent of male leadership in the marriage. So we know he, the principle, he sets order in his design because he's orderly. Second, when he takes a man and a woman, when he made man and woman, when he made them, he said, the man's going to be the leader here. Things work best when they're used for the purposes that the designer intends them to be used for. No matter what it is, right? Things work best. I could use a very male example. Can one of I can think of one that is less culturally male? You can get in trouble thinking that something's male and female, like Cam Newton. You'll be in apologizing for nothing to the whole nation, as if you did something really bad. So, is anything a female example? No, you sexist pig. Nothing is a female example. Okay, then I'll use a, a, a anybody example. If you take, if if you need a wrench, <laughs> and all you got's a pair of pliers, and you need a socket that fits. You're going to find out that you have the wrong tool. If you need a hammer and all you got is a pair of pliers, and since I'm not going to be sexist, ladies, we've all tried this before. That was supposed to be funny. Maybe you have all tried this before. I know the men have tried it, right, men? You've tried this. You had a wrench. You're too lazy to go get a hammer because you think in a second I can get this done. You took it and you tried to pound on a nail. Who has tried that? Come on, guys. Tell the truth. Things work best when they're used for the purposes the designer intends. It's always worth it to take the extra 45 seconds and go get the hammer. God designed male and female to interact in a certain way. It has nothing to do with who's smarter, who's better. It has nothing to do with that. I don't say this apologetically. I don't say, I'm sorry, ladies. I'm sorry the Bible says this. Maybe in the new world you'll finally be free from that awful man and... I say, God is good, and if trusted, his plan will work. Now, you may have questions at this point and say, the biggest mistake I made was the idiot I chose. (laughs) If I knew he was going to be the leader, I'd have chose better. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) There's hope for you. Next sermon, the one after that. Okay, those are our dance steps. 
But I do want to put it in the negative. If the roles are reversed or manipulated or disregarded, difficulties will ensue. You can't get a square peg in a round hole. You will not have what you need as family if you try to twist these up. By having two men, as mom and dad, having mom be dad and dad be mom. Paul presents this truth in, in verse 7, 8, and 9. Look. For a man ought not to cover his head. Now we're going to set that side apart. That's the cultural part, but let's get to the principle. Why not, Paul? Since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now, if you want me to explain what exactly does that verse mean, I'm going to tell you I cannot explain exactly what that verse means. Remember I said God sometimes leaves you with questions and doesn't answer them. What I can tell you is it's true. But I can, and we can try to figure this out. What does glory mean? Glory is, it can be an emanation, like light or beauty or power, something comes off you. It can be something that makes you famous, something that makes you praiseworthy. So when we talk about glorifying God, you can't do anything to make God better, but you can say you are praiseworthy. And you could tell people how wonderful he is and of his mighty works. You're making him famous. You know, Jesus is, the Bible says, the glory of God. He, 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 like the sun and light somehow. The, the light of the sun is the glory of the sun. So this is not an insult to women to say they're the glory of man. In fact, it says... <laughs> It really says what we say when we say to a man, where's your better half? She's the one who, in a marriage, says, if there's something glorious about this team, it's her. That's what's being said. Doesn't mean she's better than. But in somehow she's, I don't know. This is hard. <laughs> but I do know it's not an insult. And man, made in God's image, is the glory of man, some, or of God, somehow and we know that man includes male and female some way. It's very complicated. Still have your thinking caps on? But what we can know for sure is that Paul is saying, look, the way the husband relates to the wife as regards glory matters. So when you ask me a question about who should wear a hat, let's talk... We're talking creation, order of creation. Look, he goes on with this. This will help us out if we keep going. Verse 8. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Now, we covered that. Man was not, Eve wasn't made first, and then God said, Eve, go to sleep, and he pulled a rib out of Eve and made a man. said, here, this is for you. It was just the opposite of that. And he didn't diminish the woman. She's just as much in his image, because it says so in the Bible. God created the male and female. Male and female created he them, you know. But the woman was taken from the man and not the reverse. And then it says, neither was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. The woman was made as a helper for him. That for matters. It wasn't the reverse. Now there's feminist theologians who want to tell us that this whole thing's cultural and ignore that. And they'll come up with these wild interpretations but if you just read it as it is, I think the intent of the author is clear, isn't it? He's saying because of the way God created man and woman, in his mind, God's mind, was one of these is the head and the other is the helper. One's the leader and one is the helper. It, it hasn't got to do with equality, it has to do with function. Eve was formed first? No. She was formed second. 
and that matters. Is that cultural? No. It's eternal. You can't change the order of creation. Third eternal principle here is man and woman are interdependent and equal in value. I, like, I tell, there's people who say, well, I like the Bible. I don't like Paul. He's, he, he needs a talking to. As if you can choose which authors of the Bible you like. But I think they misread Paul in a time um, when he could have really hammered it down and made the men a bunch of ogres. He always, he always, and you'll see this next week if you come back for the sermon, he always put the men in their place so they could not be abusive or overbearing. He doesn't have to add this part, but look what he adds in verse 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of women. There's a preposition of, and all things are from God. He's saying, look, don't let us go to your head, men. You're not, you, can't, you can't exist without a woman. Every man had a woman as his first home her stomach, and, 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 and the women propagate the life. And therefore, you are interdependent. Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. This is uh, <laughs> radical religious doctrine for the first century. He's saying, men, you lead, but you do it as an equal with humility. You two are interdependent beings. And that will be developed in Ephesians 5, which we'll hit next week. But, um, so, as Paul is seeking to answer this simple question, very simple question, about the practice of head coverings for women, he establishes the principle of male headship in marriage. Do you see that? Now, (laughs) thinking cap stuff, as you read it, do you see there are eternal principles in there? He says, because God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of of man, man is the head of his wife. And, and then he says, because Christ is the glory of God. No, man is the glory of Christ and the woman is the glory of man. And then he says, because the woman was taken from and made for the man. Do you see these eternal principles? They never change, culture to culture. Okay, well, let's get to our question. Should women today wear head coverings? Or if they want to preach or, or pre, prophesy or pray, we don't really have a lot of prophesying going on in our day and age. Um, but if you want to pray or talk in front of the congregation, do they have to have a head covering? Or can they just shave their heads, which was dishonorable in that day? It's not dishonorable in our day, by the way. Women shave their heads all the time, and then they put tattoos on their head and everywhere else. It's pretty amazing. I was in a really yuppie coffee shop today. White yuppies are the funniest people. They have all this money. They're completely branded on their clothes and their shoes. You can tell they got bucks, right? And um, they drive up in their nice cars, and they're tatted from head to toe, the women, the men, as if they're urban and tough. And I'm like, sometimes I'm embarrassed to be a white person. But shaving your head is not considered a, a thing for us. But it was for the Corinthians, It would be a shame. Um, 
there are some Christians, by the way, who the women do wear head coverings. I'm not talking about the Amish. We know them. But the Mennonites, who don't mistake them for the Amish, they're modern people in the modern world, and their women do wear head coverings, some of them all the time, some of them just in church. Um, there are traditional African-American churches. If you can find old-timey African-American churches, many of them, you go in and every woman has a hat. And no men wear, wear, wear lids inside. And so they seem to be reflecting this. And... Um, uh, th- that's changed, uh, obviously. There are some individuals. I was once in a service, um, and when it was time to pray, the, the pastor was praying up front. The lady next to me reached into her purse, pulled out this lace thing, threw it on her head, and just started to pray. And, and I don't look down on them. If you think the Bible says you should wear something on your head, ladies, wear it on your head. If the Bible says you should juggle kittens and smear peanut butter on your dog, do it. It's the Bible. But as, as a pastor here, I would say that Paul is applying this principle in a local manner. Head coverings are not needed today. Why not, Pastor Mike? Because we don't have in our society this belief that if a woman wears head covering, she is showing authority to her husband. It's just not a thing. So whether you have it or not, why do you have that head covering? Oh, because I'm weird. That's all it says today. I I have to wear a head covering because I'm married. Someone will just say, well, that just signifies she's weird. It doesn't signify authority. And since, so that's the local cultural application. What's our local cultural application? I don't have one exactly, although I did... I did think of one, and that is taking your husband's last name. Taking the husband's last name, which the feminist says never do it. You lose your identity. You lose your identity. You're not a person anymore. You're his property. You're his cattle. My particular cattle spends the money and makes all the decisions in my house. I don't know how it works. She's not cattle. My wife is not cattle. She's lovely and wonderful. And... um. I'm just making jokes because, doggone it, we better learn to laugh. Oh, I forgot. We're in an oversensitive society. I'm going to have to make an apology video like Cam Newton if I make another joke. (laughs) You take on the last name of your husband, you are saying, I am forming one of these units of society called a family that God said with this man and the two of us are working together on this thing. So I would say if a Christian woman asked me, should I take my husband's last name? I'd say, absolutely. He'd say, well, I like my father's name. Put it in the middle or something. I'm not making a rule, by the way. I'm trying to take these principles and apply them to our culture. And that's what I'd say to do. What's the principle? Are you communicating to your society that you reject your husband's authority by rejecting his name? Answer is probably yes. Well, then don't do it. So we're taking the principle. Do you see the difference between that and a, a cultural, an eternal principle and a cultural application? So you are free to not wear head coverings. <laughs> but if it bothers your conscience, wear one or shave your head, which will, you know, that's cool today. You can shave your head. Uh, but yeah. The leadership structure God designed needs to be respected. Man and wife together build the family. This is God's plan for society. 
By the way, today, the church needs to uphold the practice. The church needs to think differently. I'm not saying everyone has to get married. You may not want to. I I wouldn't say you had to. But I would say that if you ask, what's our society say you should plan for if you're talking to a young adult? It's always something individual. Your vocation. What are you going to be? What are you going to be? Well, I want to get married and have kids. Oh, I know you want to do that. But wouldn't you like to be a lawyer too? Be a lawyer first, honey. And you say it to the man also. Yeah, a man says, well, I'd like to get married and have a family. Well, sure you would. <laughs> but what do you want to be? What do you want to do? We're very individualistic. As if your little vocation is, matters on this great big globe. Can I tell you something? It doesn't. It really doesn't. It's not that big a deal. You should do something, but when all is said and done, you turn to dust and your money does too. You need to be, we need to be teaching our children, look, yeah, you want gainful employment. Yeah, you want to make an impact on this world through your vocation. But the first thing you got to think about is, does God want me to start a family? It's the first thing. It's the command from the first book. Multiply, fill the earth. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's the way we should think. The world thinks wrong. God thinks right. Oh, and anyway. I want to end this differently than I first intended. So everybody who's working a PowerPoint, you're going to go, wait a minute. (laughs) You guys can take the rest of the time off and just listen. Salvation. Did you know salvation? That's about getting saved, coming to know Jesus. It's always pictures as entrance into a family. Very often the Bible calls God, calls coming to know God, joining his household. And for household, they wouldn't, we would separate household from family, right? It's a house. They wouldn't. Household is family. It's the family unit. It's the structure. It is the people in the house. Household. God is always presenting himself to us in the New Testament as the father. Jesus as the oldest son the firstborn, the leader. Salvation. Jesus says in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You're not going to exist as a tenant in a room. And you're not going to be in a mansion. Like uh, That's just a bad translation from the 1700s. It's not a mansion, it's a room. Excuse me. And I'm going to be your brother. (laughs) And you're going to be my brother or sister. And he's going to be dad. That's That's how it's presented. And when we as humans play this out, we're following his orderliness. We're making what he makes. And if you don't have a family on this earth, and that's easy, this is a very fractured society. It doesn't take much to find yourself alone. The church becomes your family. That's God's plan. You and I are God's orphans. You were an orphan once, if you know Christ. And he came and said, I'm adopting you. Come here. You. Come here. You. Come here. What what, what, what are you going to do to me, God? What's my job going to be? Well, I'm going to adopt you. Is that all right? I'll be your dad. 
I'll, I'll forgive your sins. I'll give you, I'll heal all your problems. I'll take all your hurts away and I'll give you eternal life. And then you'll live with me. Is that cool? That is what the Bible says salvation is. You cannot relate to God another way. You might say, well, I don't want to relate to God like it's too intimate. I just want to be the doorman. I just kind of come in. He's scary. He lives up on a mansion on the hill and I stay down here. No, no, no. It's family all the way. I have sweat so much that my tape came off. There we go. I'm a good sweater. God gave me that as a gift. John 9, there was a man who lost his family because of his faith. And I think he kind of lost his family to shame before that. He was, he was sitting at, uh, at the gate of the town where, where, where beggars normally would, and he's blind. And, and, and Jesus walks by, and his buddies are with him, and they say to him, hey, they ask him a theological question. Jesus, why is this man blind? Is it because his parents sinned? Ah. Is it because his parents sinned that he's born blind? Or did he sin? You know, love the, the, the theological view they have of God. Mom or dad blew it. She said, well, I'm going to poke your kid's eyes out. You know. Or he, he pulled the cat's tail. God says, I'll show you. And he blinds him. And, he, and, and Jesus says it's neither because... He was blind, or, or he sinned, or his parents sinned. Rather, he's going to show the glory of God. That's radical. You could suffer for the glory of God. So then Jesus goes to the dude and says, okay, I'm going to heal you. He doesn't say exactly that, but it's pretty much what he says. And he, and he puts some mud in his eye, which I think is really cool. <laughs> Here, you're blind? Yeah, well, this one hurt too much. <laughs> puts dirt in his eye. <laughs> It's not bad enough, I'm blind. He stuck his thumb in my eye with a bunch of mud. But, you know, the God who made the universe out of, he made man out of mud, maybe that's how he wanted to fix that eye. He's like, I just need a little more materials. So he says, go wash in the pool. And when you wash, you'll see. And the guy goes and washes. Oh, no, don't worry about it. We're good. Thank you, though, for being there to help. Dave has the tape, but it's, it's too wet now. I'd have to dry off first and... do appreciate that though um we need a staple just staple it to my head (laughs) so the guy goes to the pool and he washes and he can see he can see for the first time in his life he can see he was born blind as it turned out imagine how awesome that would be the first time in his life you see and you're seeing things and you're seeing people and you're seeing colors oh that's what that is he probably saw the way he's dressed for the first time he goes hey who put these on me (laughs) Looks in the, it looks in the, his reflection in the pool. Who did my hair? You ever wonder who does Stevie Wonder's hair? I do, you know. You look great, Stevie, really, you know. Kid have like purple and all kinds of weird stuff. But he can see. So he's naturally excited. Well, apparently he's well known. People know him in that little town. People start to say, you can see. You need to go, you need to go show the, the priest this stuff. So he does. And the Pharisees say, wait a minute. You're saying Jesus did this to you? Yeah. Well, he can't have done it to you. He's a sinner, and it's the Sabbath. He, he wouldn't. That's sin. You can't be healed on the Sabbath. I don't think you're blind. And some of the other Pharisees say, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, are we sure? So, so they, asked, they asked him, are you sure you were, you were blind? He goes, yeah, I was born that way. Eh, we don't believe it. So, so they called in his parents. And his parents were a bunch of sissies, I think. They came in and they said, he said to his parents, is this, is this your son that was born blind? 
Um, and now he's healed. And they said, well, we know it's our son. We know he was born blind, but we don't know how he was healed, even though he'd already told them, no doubt. You could tell by reading it. And the Bible says the reason they said that was because they were afraid of the Pharisees who already said, one who follows Jesus is going to be put out of the synagogue. They, father and mother, left their, hung their kid out to dry. He never had any social worth anyway. He was blind. He was ashamed of the family name. Everyone thought they sinned or something. And now he can see and he's causing nothing but trouble. We're going to get kicked out of the synagogue. They probably want him to stop talking about Jesus. And if you think that doesn't happen today, you should be in prayer for a guy named Happy. The first Muslim we met and the very first time any of us went to India and uh, he would later get saved. He's very good friends with our team over there. And just recently, um, and I also know we, we gave money. We, you didn't know you did it, but you did to help um, his father who was in the hospital. His father told him, I'd believe in Jesus because I think you're right. He said, but I can't because I'm the head of this family. You know, that, that's how they think. And, and, and we're Muslim. We, I cannot betray the family like that. Well, his, his other brother is uh, training to be an imam or a teacher of, of Islam, and they're now persecuting him and, and pushing him away from the family because he's a Christian. They're, they're dissing him. So you want to pray for happy when you think of That's not his real name, but you can pray for him. But in any case, that happened to this guy. His parents kicked him to the curb. And, and, and the, one, the one guy says, the one Pharisee says, well, we think he's a sinner. And some of the others says, well, maybe he isn't. And they say, what do you think? He says, I think he's a prophet. He says, this dude, he, we've never heard of anyone healing eyes. And they said, stop calling him a prophet. He's a sinner. And then that's it. The blind guy's had it. He goes, well, isn't this something? You guys are the teachers, aren't you? We don't know, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But I know this, nobody heals the blind in the history of the world, and he healed my eyes. And then they got mad at him. They said, what are you going to teach us? And they kicked him out. So the guy could see, but he lost his family. He lost his synagogue. He was disconnected, disenfranchised. (laughs) And so, (laughs) Jesus went and found him. The Bible says Jesus went and found him. Jesus, I'm going to read this part to you. It says, Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, son, sir? He's asking, do you believe in Messiah? Because that's what Son of Man was for the Jews. He says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you've seen him? He's speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That man is your brother, my brother. He's in our family now. And I don't know about you, but maybe you felt like (laughs) you've been disenfranchised. Jesus pulls you into the family of God. He pulls you in. That's the picture of being saved. You're adopted. It's not a religious ritual. It's not about classes you take. You become his son or his daughter. You become a brother or sister of Jesus Christ. And most of you, I think, are there, but maybe you don't think about that. There's grace to be given to you as you ask God to show you, Holy Spirit, show me that I am a son or a daughter of God, that I'm a brother or sister in a family of brothers and sisters. It might change the way you handle church. You know, we ask everyone to shake hands. 
These are your brothers and sisters. I often see a couple of you just standing real near each other, and I'll know both of you, and I'll say, do you know each other? And you'll go, no. That's your sister. That's your brother. And you were were five feet from each other. Neither of you would say your name. This is family. This is family. And if you need family, Jesus Christ went to a cross to die to save you from your sin. He rose again on the third day, and he's coming again. If you receive him as Savior, he'll take you into his family. He'll forgive your sins. Well... Next week we dance, okay? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.